Well, church family, I hope you brought your Bibles with you today. Um, We're going to be in Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30. If you didn't bring a Bible today, there's always Bibles in the seat back in front of you. We provide those to hopefully make it very um, easy for everybody in here to open a Bible, to see that what we're preaching on Sunday is not just made up. God's word promises to not return void. God's word promises to go out and accomplish everything for which God intends it to. My words, I can't promise that. God's word can transform your life today. So if you would open with me to Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30, I'm going to read it for us today, and I would ask for you to follow along with me. Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who's dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is God's word, church family. I hope that we all in here have heard the expression before, don't miss the forest for the trees. Have you heard that expression before? If you're around me, you know I use that expression sometimes. Sometimes I mix it up and say it backwards and it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, the the correct way to say the expression is don't miss the forest for the trees. If you're not familiar With that expression, I promise you, you're familiar with the experience. The the experience and the moment when we realize that we've been focusing all of our attention on minute details of something or all of the plans for something or all of the problems with something. And as a result, we miss the big picture, the big picture, the forest, right? So for example, some of us, 
we can become and struggle with discontentment with maybe a job we have or maybe a house we have. And what happens if we're not careful is we can focus on all the issues and all the problems that we have at our house or with the job that we have. And we can miss the actually really astonishing truth that we have a job. We have a house. <laughs> Those are amazing realities that many people can't say that they have. Or the opposite can happen. We can become, this is especially true for us in the West, in America, we can become so content with what we have that we can miss even the greater joys that God has for us, sometimes even through suffering and difficulty. Can't we? This is also my fear with, with some churches, that some churches can get so comfortable and so content with, yes, good, secondary, marginal things, that they can begin to lose sight and miss the greater, weightier things that the Lord may be calling them to. What are those things? Well, getting the gospel to the next generation discipling up the next generation to love the bride of Christ, the church. Those are really important things. And this problem of missing the forest for the trees has been throughout the book of Matthew a problem as well for what has been betrayed or uh, portrayed all throughout the book of Matthew. This problem has come up already in the book of Matthew, hasn't it? The problem of following the minute laws and regulations and missing the weightier or greater matters of the law. We saw that in Matthew 23, didn't we? When Jesus is indicting the Pharisees, we saw how he even humorously talked about that there. Straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel, language like that. Or Matthew 12, verse 6. Matthew 12, verse 6 is especially clear. Do you remember what's happening there? He is eating the heads of grain. And the Pharisees begin to criticize him. And they're concerned about the temple being defiled. Do you remember what G Jesus says to them in that passage? He says to them, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Do you remember that? So today, as we continue with Matthew 26, what Corey began last week for us, we're going to pick up where he left off. Corey was telling us last week about the beginning of the end, wasn't he? He unpacked for us, I'm grateful for this, brother. He unpacked for us some of the background of the Passover and how Jesus, right at the beginning of chapters 26, look there quickly, right at the beginning of 26, he draws attention to the fact, 26.2, Jesus says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified so do you catch what Jesus is doing there? He's tying his death to the Passover feast. Jesus will, as we heard last week, fulfill the Passover. Today, Matthew, through his narrative, is going to continue to beat this drum as it intensifies. And get ready, buckle up, the next few weeks... It's only going to become more and more intense. The narrative will continue to intensify. Four times in these first three verses, Passover is mentioned. Four times. 
Matthew doesn't want us to miss what's going on. Today I'm going to argue Matthew is laboring with his Jewish audience to help them see in us today something greater than the Passover is here. Something greater than the Passover is happening. Do you see that? Matthew has shown that Jesus is the Messiah throughout his book. He has shown us that Jesus is the Lord all throughout his book. We've been shown Jesus, haven't we? Jesus is the king over and over throughout the book of Matthew. Here today, we're seeing Jesus as the Passover lamb. Jesus as the Passover lamb. It's coming into full picture for us today. If you're taking notes, here's the main idea for us today. Main idea for us today is Jesus and fulfilling the Passover is a greater substitute, a greater feast, and a greater deliverance. Jesus in fulfilling the Passover is a greater substitute, a greater feast, and a greater deliverance. So let's take those one at a time, if you'll follow me. If you'll allow me to spend a little bit longer in this first point, I will go faster in the second two points, I promise. There's more to unpack in this first point than there is the second two. So this first point, we are going to see that Jesus is a greater substitute. That language is sacrificial language, isn't it? Jesus is a greater substitute. I'll come back to that sacrificial concept in just a second. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, chapter 26. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, this would have meant more to the original Jewish audience than it does to us today. What is the first day of unleavened bread? Why why did he include that in there? Well, it's another way to refer to the Passover. So that's one of the four times in these first three verses that Matthew's bringing up the Passover feast. It was a stand-in way to talk about the Passover. But look, in Mark, if you write margins on your Bible with a pencil, you could write next to this verse, Mark 14.12. Because Mark helps us. He's writing to a more Gentile audience. Mark helps us understand the significance of this. Here's what Mark 14.12 says. On the first day of unleavened bread, comma, when they sass over lamb. You see what he's doing? He's again shouting, this day is important. The Passover lamb is going to be sacrificed. So again, Matthew is signaling to his, to his audience and to us here today, Jesus' sacrificial death will fulfill the Passover. When we're reading verse 18 and you see Jesus say, Go into the city, a certain man say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. My time is a intentional moment in history is how that's used. It's also, Jesus refers to that as his hour throughout the book of Matthew. My hour is not at hand, he says over and over. My hour has not come. Here it's my time, it has come. And the question that Matthew wants us to ask is, now which time is it? Is it the time for the Passover or is it Jesus's time? And the answer is, Yes, yes, they're, they're both happening here. They're coming together. So I just want to take a moment. I mentioned sacrificial language a second ago, and I wrestled on whether or not I want to do this. I feel like I need to do this very quickly, is to talk about the background of sacrifice. There's maybe some sitting in this room and going, what in the world are you talking about? Sacrifice 
a substitute? You do know that one of the greatest criticisms that the Christian faith has against it is a sacrificial system. People think that's ridiculous. Some who are even in, they would call themselves Christians, have tried to cover this kind of language up in the Bible and not want to talk about it. For us who grew up in church, it feels like, oh yeah, we talk about this all the time. But for those who maybe aren't as familiar with Christianity, this sounds incredibly strange. Someone would die in my place? What are you talking about? So quickly, I want to say very fast things about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because this is in the backdrop of this. We need to see this. Why the sacrificial system? A couple of things God was doing with the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Really quick. Number one, God was teaching his people through the sacrificial system that our sin was very serious. Our sin was deep and very serious. Most of us today have a very low view of sin, of our own sin, of others. So it's very hard for us to imagine that sin, as the Bible teaches, is deserving of death. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, this is how sin is talked about. What did God say to Adam and Eve as he sent them? The moment you eat from the tree, what did he say? You shall surely die. Romans 5, 8, the payment of sin is what? Death. Sin deserves death. We may know that and can check that off on a theological test, but often we don't live like sin is that serious. Most of us have typically a very low view of sin, and so when we come to the sacrificial system, it seems crazy to us that sin would require death. That's not the only thing that it did, though. It taught God's people about God's own holiness. God is holy. There's a big problem that we find after Genesis 3 is that God's people cannot be in God's presence anymore. God, Isaiah 6, we learn, is three times holy. It's the only attribute in the Bible of God that's listed in the, th in the third, three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah melts in the presence of a God like that. Holy, holy, holy. There's a problem with our sinfulness and God's incredible, perfect holiness. It's we can't ever be with him. So what God does in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is he creates a way for God to have fellowship with his people. God's, get this, God's holiness demands that sin be punished. I'm going to say that again. God's holiness demands that sin be punished. By the way, we're glad for that. We are glad that God will punish sin, all sin. God will punish justly because he is a just God. Now, the problem is that we're all sinners, aren't we? So that's a problem, isn't it? We can't be in God's presence because of our sin, Sin is deserving of death. So in the sacrificial system, God creates a concept of substitution. We see it happening in the Passover in Exodus 12 and 13. An unblemished lamb is going to take the penalty. 
and will die in the place of God's people. Its blood will be shed over a doorpost. And God, when he comes through the camp, will see that the blood of the lamb was sacrificed. The lamb died in the place of those people. His judgment can pass over. As this picks up more meaning and steam throughout the Old Testament, you have the Day of Atonement. Substitution is all over the Day of Atonement. With the scapegoat imagery, our sins are given to something else and sent away. Something else dies in the place of God's people so that God can have fellowship with his people, even though it's imperfect in the Old Testament. It's regulated in the Old Testament. So I need you to hear that background. God is teaching his people through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that we are sinners, we are sinners, and God is holy. But God desires fellowship with his people, amen? And he is moving closer and closer towards his people throughout the Bible as it's unfolding And this passage today is going to pick this up. And I need to say this because sacrificial language is shot all throughout this passage. And I don't want you scratching your head and going, what in the world? What's important about that? Jesus is a greater substitute. So back to this. He's a greater substitute because he's an unblemished lamb going to be offered Corey said last week, remember in John 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Two reasons why Jesus is a greater substitute, really quick. Two reasons that this text is showing us. Jesus is a greater substitute because not only, notice this, does Jesus fulfill the Passover, Jesus is keeping the Passover. Do you notice that? Verse 18, go into the city, say to the man, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover. Why is that important? Galatians 4.4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And it says, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. In other words, Jesus would submit himself to the regulations of the law. And, good news, he would fulfill all of it. He would obey all of it. He will keep all of it. Amen? Even though all of us have not kept all of it. We've not followed all of it. Here Jesus is in this passage. What is he doing? His face is towards Jerusalem. He will keep the Passover. He won't just fulfill it. He will keep it. And that's important because Jesus, as fully man, will be our representative. He will be a sufficient sacrifice. He will be a sufficient sacrifice. He will be, Hebrews 4 says, without sin. He will keep the law perfectly as he's doing right here in front of this passage. I don't want us to miss it. But he's not only fully man and can be our perfect representative. He is fully God, notice in this passage how Jesus' omniscience is all over the place. Verse 18, you notice what he says? This amazingly vague statement, go into the city and a certain man say to him, the teacher says, my time's at hand, I will keep the Passover at your house. The disciples went and did. The, The Greek literally says, go to such and such a man. Super vague, super ambiguous. If you, you look, uh, you study this passage 
commentators basically say, most of them, either Jesus knew somebody or this is miraculous. (laughs) I tend to think this is miraculous because of what happened in Matthew 21. Matthew 21 is, is a parallel to what's happening here. Remember at the, before the triumphal entry, Jesus goes, um, is going into the village and he tells his disciples, go into the village, you will find a donkey and a colt tied, untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you just say, the Lord needs them and they'll let you go. It's like, what? what? What's going on there? Jesus is seeing to the details of everything. He knows What's in front of them? He's sending disciples to take care of it. It's like he knows exactly what's up there for those disciples to find. And he has already shown it in this gospel. But more than that, more than that, he shows in this passage that he knows the future and the hearts of every single person. He knew that he would be betrayed. In fact, Jesus being betrayed will fulfill Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend, that passage says, who I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Wow. He knows that he will be betrayed. He knows who will betray him in this passage. Let's read verses 20 through 25. Look at verse 20 through 25 with me. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he'd not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said, you have said so. Notice verse 24 The breathtaking sentence, the son of man goes as it is written of him. Luke says the son of man goes as it has been determined. Think about that parallel for a moment. For it to be written is for it to be determined. That is good news. Think about all the the promises in the New Testament that have yet to be fulfilled. Church family, they're written, therefore they're determined. Amen? We are We are holding on to the promises of God because he keeps his promises. His word cannot be broken. And we see this, what J.I. Packer again calls an antinomy here again in this verse. In one verse, you see God of the universe is sovereign and in control of every detail. And yet Judas is making real choices, isn't he? He's making real choices And he will be held responsible for his choices in this passage. In John's gospel, John 13, we're told at this point in the meal, Judas gets up and he leaves. He went out, the text said. So hear this, Jesus in fulfilling the Passover will be a sufficient sacrifice. That's why he's a better substitute. Hebrews 10 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and sheep could ultimately never take away sin. So here is the Lamb of God who is a better substitute than any animal of the sacrificial system. Amen? He actually can take away our sin. He's a sufficient sacrifice. 
He can truly satisfy God's justice and wrath so that fellowship with God can be restored. Do you, see, do you hear that? Fellowship with God can be restored. And as we're thinking about fellowship, what makes us think about fellowship more than anything? A meal, right? A feast. And this is why we see that Jesus in 26 through 29 is a greater feast. The Passover meal was a celebration. It was a celebration. Large extended families, they would sit around tables. They would eat with great joy and they would think about They're commemorating God's deliverance out of the land of Egypt, right? His deliverance out of the land of Egypt. They saw the powerful hand of God move. And these stories have been passed down from generation to generation. Look at what God has done. There'd be a question that the oldest boy would ask at the meal. What is the meaning of this, Father? And the head of the table would explain the meaning. They would follow the Old Testament pattern to do that. What is the meaning of this meal? And the And the head of the table would explain the meeting. Our God, when we were enslaved in Egypt, with his powerful hand, mightily delivered us out of the Egyptian's hand. And they would retell it. And they would celebrate it. So what Jesus does in verse 26 through 29 Jesus, God in the flesh, what does he do? He takes traditional Passover meal elements, bread and wine, and he says, look at the text in verse 26 through 29, take, eat, this is my body. He goes on to say, take, this is my blood. And what he's doing, he's going to take the one loaf that was there in the Passover meal, one loaf that was served, and he broke it, the text says, and he gave it to his disciples. Then he took a cup. Again, this is all sacrificial image of breaking. This is my body, broken. A cup. Now, the significance of the cup is important because in the Passover meal, there was four cups that would happen throughout the meal. Four cups. I'm not going to get into all all of them, but we know at the time of this feast, this is the third of four cups. Here's the thing that's important for you to hear. This cup was called the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing, Jesus says. This is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. The cup of blessing. Just think of that. Cup of blessing. He says, drink of it. And then he says, you'll drink of it again in my Father's kingdom that's coming. In other words, this new meal that Jesus is instituting would be a foretaste meal. Would be a foretaste meal. It's foreshadowing what is to come ultimately as we sit in the marriage supper of the Lamb, enjoying this feast with Christ and his Father. So like I said, the Passover, I hope you're getting a picture just for a second of the significance and the celebration of the Passover meal. The Passover meal was a celebration. It was an important feast. It was a joyful feast. And yet, the New Testament church wouldn't celebrate the Passover. Instead, they would take the cup of blessing in the Lord's Supper. Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The vast majority of Christians around the world would follow that example. They wouldn't celebrate the Passover. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
Because when Jesus, why is that important? When Jesus is fulfilling the Passover, he is showing that in him, in him, not in a previous system, not in a previous feast, in him, we would find all lasting joy and celebration. This is why, why so many, why Protestants in church history could say that in the Lord's Supper, in a sense, we're feasting on Christ, not in the Roman Catholic way, not in the Roman Catholic way, but truly and spiritually. Many Protestants could say that. Why? Because of, of verses like John 6, 51, where Jesus says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So yes, in our denomination, we don't usually like to use language like that about the Lord's Supper to avoid confusion. But there is rich significance in Christ's body being broken for us. Take, eat. Christ's blood being shed for us. In Christ, we will have and are given a better feast. But in him alone, we find celebration. We find greater joy than the Passover. The phrase, take, eat, this is my body, would have been a radical departure from the typical Passover liturgy. In other words, as they were going through it, it's almost like the turntable skipped, you know, as we hear that kind of sound effect in movies, like the turntable stops. Whoa, he breaks the pattern of the Passover feast, when he says, take, eat, this is my body. In other words, he's signaling, I'm doing something different. I'm doing something new. I'm doing something, I'm, in, I'm instituting something better. And something new and something better is exactly what he was instituting. Our third thing, and I want us to see in the text, is that Jesus, in fulfilling the Passover, is not only a greater substitute, he's not only a greater feast, he is a greater deliverance. First, how is he a greater deliverance? In these verses, Jesus is showing his disciples that the greatest bondage we face in our lives, church family, is not enslavement to Egypt. The greatest bondage we face is our enslavement to our sin. Look at verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Not a superpower of this world, Pharaoh, a superpower that is supernatural, Satan. He is rescuing us from his bondage, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. The bondage that Jesus will save us from and deliver us from is way more important, way better than the bondage that he rescued and redeemed his people in the Old Testament with. So hear this, God's judgment, anybody who doesn't know this, who hasn't trusted in this, God's judgment can pass over you this morning. Any person who trusts in Jesus, because Jesus as the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Second, Jesus is, is, a, Jesus is a greater deliverance because of where, not only what he rescues us from, but what he takes us to. So what he takes us to is a new and better covenant. A new and better covenant and a new and better kingdom. Sacrificial language again continues. There's two Old Testament allusions I want you to write here when you're thinking about the new covenant and the old covenant. Two important passages from the Old Testament you need to see. We don't have time to read them both, but Exodus 24, 8 
and Jeremiah 31, 34, Exodus 24, 8 ties the blood with the covenant. There's only two places in the Old Testament that do that. This is the most important one for this passage. Two places, blood and covenant. Through the old covenant, God cut that old covenant through blood. In the new covenant, God will initiate this new covenant, not through the blood of an animal, but through the blood of his own son. This new covenant will be given and that Exodus passage is amazing. It, it talks about a fellowship meal that happens on the top of Mount Sinai. They did, God did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel, it says, and they beheld God and they ate and drank. Exodus 24, verse 8. That is an amazing verse. Go look that verse up later. We're seeing God's fellowship happening. A fellowship meal, even in Exodus 24. Jeremiah 31, you know, is about the new covenant. And the new covenant, you need to see this, is they no longer will teach his neighbor and each, each of his brothers saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me. And then it says, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. And in other words, for us to know the Lord, we have to have our sin dealt with. That's what will happen in the new covenant. That's good news. Our sin can be dealt with in this new covenant. And this is what Jesus is offering us He's a greater deliverance because his death brings a new and better covenant. Hebrews tells us that it's founded on better promises. It's a covenant in Christ's own blood. Christ's sacrifice will bring not limited fellowship with God, unending fellowship that now we can have with God because God's wrath and his justice has been poured out on the Son and not on us. He's a better substitute. Jesus is a better feast. He is a better deliverance. Romans 5, 1 is such an important. Therefore, since we've been justified, declared righteous, how did that happen? Because of Jesus, the text goes on, because through Christ, we have peace with God. Peace with God for anyone who trusts in the Son. Amen. Peace with God for anyone who looks upon this lamb and trusts in his death in our place. We can have peace with God and fellowship. Amen. So how do we apply this to our lives? Okay, quickly. How can we respond to this? A couple of things that are on my heart. Let's just go right through the points quickly. We must first live like Christ is a greater substitute. Here's what I mean by that. Do you live like someone in the Old Testament? Practically. I know none of y'all would think that y'all do that. But practically, do you live like someone in the Old Testament, waiting anxiously for the next day of atonement, for, for the next Passover, so that your sins can be dealt with again? Do you live like that, practically? If you do, it means you don't understand that Christ is a better substitute. Do you live shackled regularly by shame and guilt? Do you live waiting for additional atonement to be made for your sins? Atonement has been made. Do you see that? Atonement has been made. Matthew is shouting that to us. He is sufficient. 
Hebrews calls Jesus the once for all sacrifice. Not the regular ongoing sacrifice of the Old Testament system. Once for all. That's good news. That is security. If you're here and you're looking for security and not work your way to heaven religion, that is what Christianity offers. Security in Christ. All of God's wrath is dealt with. His justice is satisfied because it all goes to the Son. We'll see next week. Jesus will take a cup of wrath so that we all could take a cup of blessing. Praise God for that. Second, we must live like Christ gives us a greater feast. In Christ, as I tried to say a moment ago, we have lasting, deep joy and happiness. Nowhere else can we find that. The Lord's Supper, church family, God, Christ, has given to us now to commemorate his death. We don't celebrate the Passover anymore. Jesus went to great lengths to celebrate and obey the Passover. It would have been unthinkable for the people of God at this time to miss the Passover. And if it was such a big deal then, how much more of a big deal should it be for us who have been given this Lord's Supper to come together and take it regularly So many people just lightly miss the Lord's Supper. They lightly miss corporate worship where we take the Lord's Supper. And they they miss like it's yoga class or something. College students, chapel can't replace your local church involvement. I've been to a lot of chapel services. They've never served me the Lord's Supper. This is where we take this. The Lord expects us to take it and he has a great blessing for us in taking this. He means for us to see it as a greater feast, a more weightier, important feast. And finally, we must live like Christ gives us a greater deliverance. Christ gives us a greater deliverance. Thomas Watson, Thomas Watson famously said, till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. If you don't realize that our sin was and is an enormous problem with a holy God and that it had to be dealt with, that's what the sacrificial system was vividly a reminder of for God's people. God's holiness demanded he punish sin. Do you have a low view of sin? If you have a low view of sin, you won't appreciate the cross. You won't appreciate the deliverance that God has given you in Jesus Christ. Do you see that he's delivered you from something infinitely worse than bondage in Egypt? He has delivered us from the domain of sin and darkness forever through his son. Do you see that? Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. If you you all know this, you all know that in the Passover, you would eat bitter herbs. And it was to remind you, as you ate bitter herbs in the Passover meal, of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. And as we come to this table, we should be reminded of how bitter our sin is. When we were enslaved to sin, it was a way worse taskmaster than anybody in Egypt was. Some of us need to be reminded again today of the bitterness of our sin and turn away from it, even today in a new 
Christ and the gospel will never be precious to us until we understand the backdrop of our bondage to sin. I'll say that again. Christ and the gospel to us, church family, will never be precious until we understand the backdrop of our bondage to sin. Do you, do you understand that backdrop? It will change the way you worship on Sunday when you come in here. It will make you want to raise your hands. I don't know if you were hearing what we were singing earlier. It was finished upon the cross. That's a big deal. None of us could have any of our worship heard today unless Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. God would just be shutting up his ears because our worship would never reach his ears unless Jesus' blood has been sacrificed for us. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So what better way to apply this text than taking the Lord's Supper together now, church family? What better way? So what I want to do is I want to invite our deacons to come now.